more high tech than I realized. Well, Bjorn Lomborg, thank you for uh, for joining us on on Base Podcast, and uh, it's a great pleasure, I got to say. I, I um, as we were saying just prior to switching on, I, I my first interaction with your name was uh, it was ten more than ten years ago, but around about that, sitting in Bali, just uh, you know, north of Australia here, reading your book, Cool. It, of course, was the follow up to Skeptical Environmentalist, and uh, I imagine you drew a bit of flack for that book. I, I, I imagine you're probably used to that now, but but it was a great read and I really enjoyed it. And, um, you know, were you sort of becoming used to getting the slings and arrows at that stage from, from someone who didn't like the message? Oh, oh God, yes, yes, uh, for a long time, yeah. So it's great to be here, yeah. Alex. Yeah, great to be here. So, and of course, you're... Um, uh, now we have a new book now, which is uh, Best Things First, which I've got a copy of here. And uh, I've enjoyed very much, by the way, I've, I've read it. I, I don't get a chance to read as much as I'd like in this job, but um, it's, it's an intriguing thesis. And I, I don't think your overall thesis has varied much from the days of, of Cool It. I mean, the, the, the concept really is we're spending a lot of money on climate change, but should we be spending money a little bit better? And you, you sort of come up with 12 different uh, approaches, 12 different things you should be targeted. Do you, do you want to just sort of tell, tell sure. us about the book? Absolutely. So, look, uh, the world has literally promised everything to everyone with the so-called sustainable development goals, uh, which is, you know, this amazing thing that the UN wants and, and all governments, Australia, everybody else, have signed up to this, want to basically fix the whole world by 2030. Uh, so we promise we're going to uh, get people out of hunger and out of poverty. We're going to fix uh, education and corruption and war and climate change. And we're going to get all good things to everyone, including organic apples and, and, and you know, uh, uh, city parks. Uh, so it literally is everything we promised. And of course, if you promise everything, you have no direction. And so what I tried to say is, look, we're now halfway in our, uh, in our project, or at half time really, from 2016 to 2030, uh, 2023 is half time, uh, and we're nowhere near halfway in delivering all our, uh, of our promises. Uh, this is not very surprising because when you promise everything, that's gonna be fantastically costly. Uh, we're probably talking in the order of 10 to 15 trillion US dollars additional to what the world is currently spending. And of course, there's no way uh, we're gonna come up with that money. And so if we're not gonna do everything, what we try to do is to say, what should you do first? What are some really cheap and simple ways to make the world fantastically much better? And so uh, we work with a lot of economists, uh, more than 100 economists, several Nobel laureates, try to find out where can you spend extra dollars or shillings or rupees or whatever your currency is and do the very most good for each one of those spent. It turns out that when you use this cost-benefit analysis, which is really just a tr way to try to say how much is this going to cost, not just in money, but also in lost time and damages and environmental costs, and in benefits, not just monetary benefits, but also social benefits, people not dying and uh, ecosystem services or ecosystems, so wetlands not destroyed. If you try to add up all of those, we really try to find what are the ones that deliver at least $15 back on the dollar. So our amazing investments. And the, the, the very headline version is really, if you spend about $35 billion a year, so, yeah, that's not nothing. I don't think you have, I certainly don't have $35 billion. Uh, but, but, you know, in the big scheme of things, this is really couch change, uh, $35 billion a year. 
you could save 4.2 million lives each and every year in the poor half of the world. And you could make the poor half of the world $1.1 trillion richer. So indeed, for every dollar spent, on average, these 12 amazing things can do about $52 worth of good. Actually, I don't know if you've seen it. I've noticed that on the, on the cover, we actually have the conclusion on the cover. This is the benefit, and that's the cost a little bit down there. So that's I, did, sort of I saw that. I saw that was oh, nice framing, I thought. I... <laughs> thank you. <laughs> I so you really just have to look at the cover and then you're done, right? But I'd love yeah. to talk some more about what are, what are those you know, 12 things yeah. that happen. I, I, I think they're fascinating. And I think the, 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 the thing that really stuck out right early on in the book is you, you, you make the point that no one likes saying no, and particularly politicians never like saying no. Uh, and so we've kind of led ourselves into this you know, almost spendathon, uh, where we should just be stopping and saying, "Well, if we're actually going to do some good, let's look at those twelve things." So, I mean, they, they, they make a lot of sense. You, you talk about things like education, like trade, like various healthcare type scenarios. There are twelve of them, but take me through a few of those. Sure. Yeah. So let me just give you one health and one non-health. So you know, very obviously, lots of people still die absolutely needlessly. So one of the big things is tuberculosis. Uh, uh, it kills 1.4 million people each year. So it's, again, the deadliest infectious disease in the world. Uh, COVID hit it out of the park, obviously, for two years. Uh, but you know, this is a huge disease, but we don't know about it because uh, the rich world actually fixed this more than half a century ago. Remember, in the 1800s, every fourth person that lived died from tuberculosis. We estimate globally over the last 200 years, about a billion people have died from tuberculosis, but we fixed it. But surely we should also fix it in the poor half of the world. This is especially in India, Indonesia, uh, several other places where there are lots and lots of uh, tuberculosis death still. And this is, this is fairly simple. It's not rocket science. It's about making sure that people get medication, that they take their medication. Remember, you have to take this four to six months uh, if you've ever gotten you know, uh, drugs from your doctor, it's kind of hard to remember to do it for two weeks uh, when you start getting well after the first week, right? But you actually have to keep doing that. So, you know, you do a lot of, you get apps where people sort of gamify it and they make sure they do it. You get like a juice carton every every week if you've taken your medication or or maybe you meet up at Tuberculosis Anonymous and, and sit and say, yes, I took all my medications last week. And it, it seems a little weird that you have to do this, but the point is, once you've taken the medication for a little while, you're you're fine, but you'll still pass on the disease to 10 to 15 others unless you take it for six months. So we have a great interest in making sure that that happens. Likewise, we also have to find the four to five million people who get TB each year, but don't get diagnosed. These are often you know, uh, very marginalized people, uh, people in slum areas or mining communities or prisons or whatever. Prisons, and yeah. we, we, we need to get to those people. So in Bangladesh, they had uh, typically widows, uh, old widows who would know like 15 other families, then they'd walk around. They, this wasn't the only thing they did, but they'd walk around and ask, you know, so how are you? Has anybody been coughing for the last week? And, you know, if they keep coughing for three weeks, then they sort of try to get them to the clinic and get them tested for TB, right? It's a great way to try to find these additional TBs and then, of course, get them on drugs. This will cost in the order of 6.2 billion US dollars. But the benefit is, 
we can, over the next half century, save about a million people each and every year. Why are we not doing this? Every dollar spent will do $46 worth of good. So that's, that's a health initiative, right? That's obviously one of those. There's also TB, there's childhood diseases. There are also chronic diseases we could also get into. But let me just talk, talk about the other thing you mentioned, namely education. Uh, everybody agrees education is a big thing. Uh, and we've actually managed to get almost everyone in the poor world into school. Unfortunately, they're learning very little. Uh, so there's a, uh, there's a test, standard test that you give 10-year-olds uh, around the world. So remember, there's almost half a billion kids in school, in primary school, in the developing world. Uh, and if you give them this test uh, that they're supposed to be able to uh, take when they're 10 years old, one of the questions is they have to read uh, the following sentence. VJ has a red hat, a blue shirt, and yellow shoes. What color is the hat? The answer is red, right? <laughs> but, but unfortunately, 80% of all kids can't answer that question. And it's not, so we've technically managed, they can read the individual words, but they can't string them together into a sentence. And that's just, this is why a lot of countries are poor. If these countries were on the level of the UK, we estimate they would on average be 40% richer. It's just simply one of those things that lift people out of poverty if they become educated. And so one of the problems with education, this is true everywhere, but especially in the developing world, is that you have, you know, say, all the groups of 12-year-olds are in the same grade, and then all the 13-year-olds are in grade above and so on. But these 12-year-olds are vastly different. Some of them are way ahead of the teacher. Many of them have no clue what's going on. The teacher, have 50 of these maybe in the class, surely he or she should teach them at their level and help them move up. But you can't do that with 50 kids. But there's a technological solution. So we asked our experts, some of the best uh, education economists in the world, what is the very best way to help? And one of those ways, we actually have three, but I'm just going to tell you about one of them. One of those ways is to teach at the right level. So basically teach each kid at his or her own level. Now, you can't do this for a teacher, but you can do this if you put them in front of a tablet one hour a day. This tablet has educational software, so it'll very quickly sort of adjust to exactly your level and start teaching you at that level. So for the other seven hours a day, they'll go to this boring old school that's not really working, but for one hour a day, they'll sit down these tablets. Now, the reason it's only one hour is then they can share this tablet with seven or eight other kids, right, that go through the whole, uh, the whole school day. If you do this for one year, one hour a day, each of these kids will now have learned as much as they normally would have learned for three years of schooling. It's just a phenomenal investment. It costs 30, $21, uh, U.S. dollars per kid per year, and it basically teaches them so much that when they become adults and go out and become employed, they will make so much more money and may be so much more productive that it's equivalent to about $1,000 today. So spend $21, do $1,000 worth of good. That's a fantastic investment. This is the kind of thing that we should do. It'll cost about $10 billion globally for the whole poor half of the world but it'll deliver more than $600 billion of benefits each and every year. So again, these are just two of those amazing things that we should be doing. 
And I mean, I think just last week, uh, the, the uh, Secretary General of the UN talked about spending something like 500 billion, half a trillion dollars um, by way of a stimulus package to sort of continue to roll this out. You're saying, uh, you know, 35 billion, which you, you know, quite rightly say in comparison is a very small amount, um, could be done to do more good than, you know, than we might get out of a massive spend. Those 12 things obviously have their own lane to go in and their own spend, but how is it possible that the UN is still pushing this high spending agenda? What's happened there that has this message hasn't got out to you know, governments all around the world and the United Nations that there's a better way? There must be something driving this hyper-spending agenda. So, so my sense is it's two things. Partly, as you mentioned at, at the very beginning, politicians hate to say no, and this is why... Uh, all of politicians globally ended up just saying yes to everything. Uh, and, and the UN, I think, feels bound to that. Uh, they feel like we promised all this stuff we are not going to let go. Uh, and I get that. That's sort of a, you know, I, I can see why an organization would want to do that. But you know, now we're at halftime and we're failing badly. And so the Secretary General himself is saying, we're failing badly. We're failing on each of the promises that we've made. We see lots of stuff not happening. His argument then is, oh, if it's not working with the existing spending, we got to spend more money. That's also a very typical sort of bureaucratic way of thinking, right? Well, more money can fix some of it. And that's, that's of course true. You know, If you were to spend half a trillion dollars more, you'd get more good. That, that seems reasonable, but there's two things. Partly, there's no way we're gonna find half a trillion dollars lying around somewhere each and every year. That's just not going to happen. And he knows that as well. Uh, so I met with some of the guys who, who are organizing the uh, G20 and they were like, they, uh, the Secretary General told them the same thing and they were like, where, where the hell is that money gonna come from? So partly it's not gonna happen. Secondly, if, even if we manage to get some of that extra money uh, up there, do we just want to spread it thinly across all of these things? Because again, we have the same issue. Some of these things that we promised are incredibly effective. Some of them are not very effective. And again, remember, in education, for instance, we promised everything. There's a lot of ways to spend money and deliver very little good. Uh, so one great example, or depressingly, but a very interesting example is Indonesia, uh, who back in the early 2000s decided, we're gonna spend a lot more money on education, which is a nice intention. So they actually doubled, they put it into their constitution, doubled the spending from government budgets on education. So they built a lot of new schools. They uh, hired about a million new teachers and they doubled the wages of each teacher. This all sounds great, but the way they did it, so they did it in different regions at different times. So researchers could actually do a sort of pseudo random randomized controlled trial study on it. So they could actually see how much effect does it have to double the spending on teachers. And this is a very famous paper. It's called Double for Nothing. So you can sort of hear where this is going. Uh, they basically estimated there was no impact whatsoever on learning. Now, the teachers were much happier, which, of course, is a good thing if you're a politician. But presumably, teacher happiness is not our first priority when it comes to actually making education better. The issue here is there's a lot of ways to spend money and achieve very little or nothing in the case of, of, of Indonesia for educational quality. So back to your question on, on the Secretary General, 
if we spend these five, if, if we manage to get $500 billion, billion or even just a fraction of that and just spend it thinly across everything, chances are we're going to spend a lot of things that deliver little or no good. Whereas what we should be doing is spending on these high good uh, 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 policies that we're emphasizing these 12 things. The problem, of course, is, again, that doesn't feel right. It doesn't feel like, well, we want to say we're doing a little bit of everything. No, you should be doing the very most effective thing first, which is tuberculosis, which is malaria, which is uh, immunization of kids and deal with chronic diseases. But again, chronic disease is one of the things we find is we know that you can do something about heart disease. That's you know, most most uh, old elderly people in the rich world are now on these uh, statins or uh, uh, antihypertensive pills. Uh, and we basically reduced uh, heart disease death dramatically in the rich world. Cancer, on the other hand, so heart disease and cancer are the two big things that people die from. Cancer is very, very hard to do, and it's much more expensive. And so if you want to do something cheaply, you should focus on heart, not cancer. But, you know, again, politicians would want to say, well, you know, half and half kind of thing. We should spend equally in both of them. So we're, we're kind of going against the grain of what the, what the UN Secretary General and everybody else would want to do. But I think... You know, this conversation that we're having, uh, this book, this this realization that we're not actually uh, living up to our promises, I think is an eye opener for a lot of people and a way in to get us to spend better. Again, I'm just simply hoping I, I still think we're going to be spending a lot of money pretty poorly, but I'm simply hoping, you know, the next thirty five billion dollars you find, let's spend them on these 12 amazing things. And that by itself will just do so much good that even if we also waste some money, we're still going to be doing pretty good. And, and I mean, of course, some of them are long tail as well, aren't they? I mean, some of them are, like you say, if with education, you're not going to immediately see the results of that. So politicians would gravitate. And I say that, you know, with the, you know, uh, hand on my heart saying I am one, even though I'm not sounding like one at the moment. But I, but I know that 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 in the, the zeitgeist of the political sphere, what's going to give, as you say, bang for buck now, will sometimes unfortunately get more for that, uh, more attention than, uh, than say, some of those long tail issues, which are equally as important. But um, you mentioned tuberculosis. If you, if you were picking, let's say, two of those 12 uh, for bang for buck and dollar for spend, uh, which two would it be? So <laughs> that's like asking me which of my 12 kids, can you pick two of them? <laughs> Uh, but let, let me give you two of the, the highest bang. So one is e-procurement, um, which is, you know, uh, uh, let me just step out a little bit. So corruption, obviously, is a huge issue in the world. Uh, uh, we, we, for obvious reasons, don't know exactly how much it costs because it's, it's all hidden. Uh, but one uh, very famous estimate uh, suggested costs the world at least a trillion dollars, U.S. dollars, each and every year in, in lost opportunities and, and uh, uh, too much spending. Uh, and one of the ways, so there's a lot of ways we don't know how to fix corruption. Um, but one of the ways is to recognize that the biggest spender in almost all poor countries is the government buying stuff. So that's everywhere from pens and post-it notes to roads. But obviously, given that roads is so much more expensive, it's mostly infrastructure. And if you made that bidding process, so the procurement process, more transparent, you have a great opportunity to not only make corruption less, but then also actually make your tax dollars more efficient, uh, efficiently spent. Uh, so uh, one of the things we find is 
try to make e-procurement online. So essentially put it on eBay, if you will. Um, and what happens, so we, we work with Bangladesh, who has a sort of very British system. Uh, so they had uh, this idea that, they, uh, that if the government wants something, they publish in an obscure journal, and then people will sign and you know, send in sealed envelopes into government office with their bid. And now only a few uh, businesses will hear about it because you actually have to, you know, scan this uh, this odd paper every week. Uh, and then, uh, and then, typically in the local setting, the the ruling elite would already have decided you were going to actually have that bid. Uh, so what they would do is they simply put up goons outside this office, so physically you couldn't come in with your bid. Now, if you do this electronically, you can still, you know, have shenanigans. But we know, because we tested this in quite a few countries, it's much harder to do so. So what you basically get is you get a lot more bids, you get them more quickly, you typically get better quality, but crucially, you get lower prices. And that means that you can basically get rid of, you probably don't get rid of all corruption, but you can get rid of some corruption. So for Bangladesh, we found that this would save about $700 million for them on their uh, procurement budget each and every year. And so not surprisingly, the finance minister loved this idea, uh, but everybody just below him hated it because they're the ones who get part of the bribes. Right? Uh, so we actually had to spend a lot of political capital in doing this. But so all rich countries already have this. Many poor countries have it. But about 70 countries in the world out of 200 don't have e-procurement. It's incredibly cheap. So we estimate this would cost $76 million. So virtually nothing. This is something Australia could just simply uh, take on for itself. $76 million a year. It's basically uh, set up the system. You could also import it from other elsewhere, uh, but nations just typically don't want to do it. You have to teach a couple million of your uh, uh, government officials to use it, and then you have to help your uh, businesses uh, uh, get online and using it. But once that gets going, you will just simply save about $10 billion. So every dollar spent will deliver $125 worth of good. That's the best thing you can do. Uh, the second best thing is childhood immunization. So a lot of people have been, you know, after COVID, very worried about COVID vaccine and all that stuff. This is not it. It's just simply more childhood vaccines. The things that everybody know worked. You know, vaccinate your kids against measles and those kinds of very simple things. If you did that more, although we're now at 80 or 85% in most poor countries, if we got up to 90, 95%, we would save even more lives. It would be more costly because it's the last mile. It's all those uh, moms and kids who still haven't gotten uh, 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 vaccinated. But the total cost, we estimate, would be about $1.7 billion. But the benefit would be that you would save about half a million kids each and every year. So every dollar spent would deliver $101. So two amazing, simple things we should just do. I mean, I, I, um, you know, have, I think, for the reasons you said before about the, the spend and the bureaucratic nature of it, do have a degree of skepticism, skepticism about the UN. Some of the stuff we see sometimes alarms me. Uh, but I mean, you're closer to it than I am. You, you, you deal with these people on a daily, daily basis, probably. And do you, has, is the UN still fit for purpose, do you think, for countries? I mean, I, I, there are most Australians would probably say yes, 
I, I do worry sometimes about the, you know, the, the sort of spending and the bureaucratic nature and the, the you know, the, the kind yes. of globalist approach in many ways, but you're closer to it. Um, what, what are your views on it? So we're obviously talking to the UN, but this is not predominantly about the UN. This is more about making sure that governments like Australia and uh, is it still called DFAT or is it's probably changed? It is. Uh, so, you know, getting DFAT to spend its considerable resources on some of those things first, right? It's about having politicians like you and everybody else asking DFAT to do the same thing. It's about doing this for USAID and for DFID and all the other countries uh, that are rich, but it's also about getting this out to poor countries. Because again, remember, uh, Bangladesh should do this in Bangladesh and Indonesia should do this in Indonesia. So we've actually published uh, all of these stories. So I've written about 14 stories on, on these 12 ideas and a, and a capstone on each side uh, in in uh, the Jakarta Times and, and Bangkok uh, Post, I think it's called, in uh, uh, Times of India and India and so on, uh, in about 35 uh, papers around the world. So we're also trying to tell, you know, the poor countries, this is where you should be spending your money. I think this is really a collective effort for everyone to realize two things, partly, that we can spend money on these very specific and incredibly effective things. But also, and at the same time, that spending money smartly is a good idea. So, you know, learning that more general point of saying, maybe this is not just something we should do for the SDGs for right now, for the poor half of the world. Maybe this is also a conversation that we should have in Australia, in Bangladesh, in Denmark, in places where we say, all right, so we can't spend money on everything. Where should we start? Uh, so, so I think UN is important, and UN were the conveners of this. But ultimately, this is going to be done with DFAT money and with poor country uh, government money, and we should make sure that that's uh, sort of funneled uh, towards the most effective stuff first. And, and I just think back onto it. I mean, because I'm in, I'm intrigued by the, um, the, the the very sensible, pragmatic nature of your environmentalism. Like I, I, I think that was what drew me to it originally with the book Call It. Um, but it does, it's an interesting backlog because you're really, you're a social scientist and a sort of an economist by background. And then you, because it was a big issue, presumably, but, but you, drew, you sort of drifted into, uh, you know, the climate change discussion and environmentalism. How did that all play out? How did you get involved and how did you sort of go into that lane uh, from your position in social science? So the funny thing is, uh, for a very long time, so since uh, I, I wrote The Skeptical Environmentalist back in 2001, uh, and that was very much, you know, I, I used to be a member of Greenpeace, not out on the rubber boat, but, you know, just a paying member and the backpack and the badge and everything. Uh, and, and I worried a lot about the environment. And that was sort of my, my uh, uh, data walkthrough of a lot of the things that we think are getting worse, but actually most things in the environmental area are getting better. You know, so obviously air pollution in most rich countries, so on. That was the main idea. But back then, I started realizing one, one of the arguments I made back then, it was the Kyoto Protocol, if you remember, uh, on, on climate change. Uh, and it was slated to cost $180 billion, which just happened to be each year happened to be the same cost as the cost of giving everyone in the world clean drinking water and sanitation permanently forever. And so I just made that point, you know, that comparison in my uh, in the skeptical environmentalist. But I thought 
That's an you know, it was just because those two numbers were the same thing. But surely, more generally, we should have that conversation about what are our priorities for the world. And so actually, already in 2004, uh, together with The Economist, the magazine, I, uh, I did the first global prioritization where I tried to say, where can you spend extra money and do the most good? And what we found was, in general, you know, there's some incredibly effective things that we're not talking about, and there are some fairly ineffective things that we're talking a lot about, climate uh, being one of them. It's not that climate is not a, uh, an issue. It is a problem. It's something we should fix. But we often end up fixing really, really poorly. That means almost not at all, but at very, very high cost. Uh, and so what I've been saying for the last pretty much 20 years is, you know, due tuberculosis, don't do the stuff that you're doing on climate right now. In the poor half of the world, I typically just talk about tuberculosis and you know, uh, vaccines and all that stuff. But in the rich world, almost everyone that wants to hear anything is about climate change because we, we're, we're so rich. We fixed all the easy problems. We want to hear about the expensive ones. Uh, and, and so in some sense, the reason why you've heard about me mostly talking about climate is just simply because you live in the rich world. Uh, I've been saying all the other stuff. If, if you remember in, in Cool It, I actually have one section of one chapter where I also talk about all the other things in the world. But, you know, most people read that book because they want to read about climate change. And, and, and that's just simply that sort of shows the divide in our world that, yes, we live in a world where we currently spend $1.1 trillion on, on uh, climate. Uh, and, and yet we're, we're struggling to come up with you know, a tiny fraction of that with $35 billion. Again, I'm not saying let's get rid of all the $1.1 trillion because some of it is possibly well spent. Some of it could be spent much, much better in research and development into green en energy uh, uh, so we could discover the new energy forms are actually going to power the 21st century and that will be acceptable for China and India and Africa. But right now, we're spending an enormous amount on pretty ineffectively on climate, and we're spending way too little on stuff that could actually do an amazing amount of good. And in uh, starting back from like the skeptical environmentalist and cool at that era to the, the current book, um, the, the Best Things First, has your thesis changed much? Uh, has your view changed about the general proposition? Because it doesn't seem to me like it's changed at all, really. It seems like it's more of an elaboration on those original, or that original point that, you know, maybe we can address uh, this issue and and do it in a sort of more cost-effective way and attack other things it seems like yeah. you've just elaborated on that and your views haven't really haven't really diverged much from those early days would that be kind of accurate so um, it, it's pretty accurate but but it sounds also like i'm a little lazy so i'll, I'll give you a little bit of a background to it so on climate uh, for the last 30 years or so climate economists have basically pointed out look Doing nothing about climate is a bad idea because cutting the first ton of CO2 is incredibly cheap and will have the m biggest impact because it will cut the temperature, the, the most dangerous temperatures first. Cutting the last ton of CO2, so the net zero, is a really bad idea because it's going to cut virtually no benefit, but it's going to be fantastically expensive. So not surprisingly, economics have found you should do somewhere in between. And what they found is typically you should do some, but not all that much. 
This has been incredibly annoying to a lot of environmentalists. Uh, and, and economics just keep telling you this. Uh, 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 William Nordhaus, who was the first uh, climate economist to really do this, got the Nobel Prize in 2018. He's the first and only uh, climate economist to get the Nobel Prize for it. But, you know, it's just simply standard knowledge. Everything else in the climate conversation is really just refinements of all that. Uh, a lot of people feel, oh, but we've had six big reports from the UN Climate Panel report. Yes, but if you actually look at them, they pretty much come out with the same result, namely that if you double CO2, you get somewhere between 1.5 and 4.5 degrees temperature rise. We've still not learned anything more than that. I, I, this is not entirely true and it's not entirely fair, but the rough point is we know it's a problem, we know reasonably well what we should do about it, but we just keep you know, talking about other stuff and increasingly catastrophize everything that we talk about. You know, for instance, uh, uh, heat waves is a great example. Yes, there are going to be more heat waves. People are going to die more from heat. One of the very obvious solutions is to make sure that people have access to cheap air conditioning because that is what saves people's lives. But what you also have to remember is in Australia and every other place in the, on the planet, many, many more people die from cold. And as temperatures rise, you're going to have fewer cold waves. And that actually, certainly now and in the next couple of decades, actually uh, makes up for more than makes up for the additional heat deaths. And again, making sure that people don't die from cold is also about getting them access to cheap energy so they can keep warm in the winter. The, the other half of that point, the, the, all the other issues in the world, uh, I think we have learned a lot more. So when we did this first, uh, uh, there was a lot less uh, uh, evidence on what really works and what doesn't. And I'm happy to say that we've at least paid, uh, uh, played part of that in making, making sure that there's a lot more research on it. Uh, I think some of the things that we've discovered is also that some things that weren't effective now have become effective. So, for instance, as I mentioned, heart, uh, uh, heart attack pills. So basically uh, uh, blood pressure lowering uh, pills um, used to be fairly expensive. That's why we didn't recommend them in 2015. Now we found a cheaper way to screen people. So you need less doctor time. So it becomes so cheap that it actually works for, uh, for, uh, for poor people. That's why we're now recommending it. Some other things uh, have turned out not to be as effective anymore. Uh, so for instance, back in 2015, we recommended uh, there was a good idea to build out 3G network uh, because if you have connectivity, if you're a fisherman and coming in with your uh, with your uh, catch of fish, you have to decide which of the two ports do I go to. You can actually look up and see what the price of fish and take the fish to where you get the most for it, right? Where they're most valuable. And this is true in a lot of different uh, senses. But now everybody have 3G. Now getting now we're talking about getting 5G, and now 5G is great if you have Netflix and you can watch in HD or you know, for more porn, which is unfortunately what most of it is going to be used for. But it's not actually the thing that will drive a lot of economic development anymore. And that's why we're not anymore recommending this. We've already built out 3G. Uh, 4 and 5G is more sort of nice to have than actually must have. And so we found a lot of things, but this is more sort of below the surface. I'm just basically trying to tell you, it's not that I've just uh, you know coasted on this for 20 years. But yes, fundamentally, 
The same point applies both on climate and all the other challenges in the world. No, I mean, obviously I wasn't suggesting you've been sitting around twiddling your thumbs for 15 years. I, I just, I just noticed that it was a very, very consistent theme. I think that, you know, that really is, it's a matter of resources and we, we, we have to find a way to use them better. And I, the, the, the theme that's developed over that time, though, is this sort of hyper-climate alarmism that's come, particularly in the West, particularly in countries like Australia, where it feels from, from the outside and from the political sphere that we're getting a lot of um, you know, all propaganda through the school system. Kids are frightened. You know, there's this sort of perverse effect of all of this where kids are, you know, think that the, that the world is going to end in whatever it was, you know, 10 years, two years, five years. Um, how have you seen that develop? I mean, is that... A deliberate thing is it something that's just developed because nations as you say are wealthy and they need something to aim at um or is it my imagination that could just be my imagination no it's certainly not your imagination there's a lot of people who are very worried we know that there's a lot of clinical cases uh the ocd made a survey where they said uh, uh where they found that 60 percent of all rich people in rich countries now believe that global warming well, if we don't do a lot about climate change, it'll either likely or very likely lead to the end of mankind. And that's just simply silly. That's not what the UN Climate Panel is talking about at all. They're talking about this as a problem, not by any means as the end of the world. I think it's a combination of things. I think it's partly that, uh, you know, obviously we have a lot of media that basically works on clicks. Uh, and you know, even ABC does this, uh, not directly, but indirectly, because they want to make sure that they can show politicians like you. See, we have great viewership. Uh, so, you know, that there's this constant push to give people something that they will engage in. And we know that, you know, uh, 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 something that bleeds will lead. Uh, and, and so it's just much, much more interesting to keep on sort of making this catastrophizing. Now, in, in times of old, there would have been a, a sort of uh, 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 sense of, oh, but we also need to make sure that this is correct. Uh, and unfortunately now, it's just sort of gotten to the point where everybody just runs with it. And, and we'll just you know, make up stories that are plausible and have some truth to them, but are mostly just misleading. Uh, uh, just yesterday, I tweeted on on how uh, the world is uh, slated to have another uh, record uh, crop uh, crop harvest. We're simply going to have more uh, uh, cereal crops than ever before. And yet, climate uh, people are, around the world are talking about that we may have a situation where the whole food system is going to collapse. And you're like, what alternative world do you live in? All of the prognoses, all of the prognoses out into the future show we're going to be producing more and more food. Now, climate will mean that we will produce slightly less, much more food than we otherwise would have. So there is a truth to this. So you know, if you're just going to uh, take to 2050, if there was no global warming, we would increase in, in the average of all these models. There's a lot of assumptions that go in here, but there's the same assumptions across all of what I'm going to tell you. So. By 2050, we, if there was no global warming, we would see 55% more food production. Because of global warming, we will only see 53% more food production. Now, this is a problem because we'd rather have had 55 than 53. 
That's absolutely true. This will mean slightly higher prices. This will mean it'll be slightly harder to get hold of food. That means that we will see fewer and fewer people uh, starving, but slightly more fewer people than we would otherwise have had. But remember, they've also done the studies of what happens if you then make strong climate policies, because that actually reduces, as we've seen in uh, uh, Sri Lanka, there's a lot of other things that went wrong there. Uh, but if you restrict, uh, for instance, fertilizer, you get a lot less food produced. Uh, and that's one of the ways that you could conceivably uh, try to restrict uh, CO2 emissions. If you have strong climate policies to limit temperatures to two degrees, we may very well end up in a situation where we only have 48% more food by 2050. So the important part here is to recognize, yes, climate is a problem, but climate policy could very easily become an even bigger problem. And in all of these scenarios, we'll have much, much more food by 2050. And not getting our kids to understand this is terrible because it literally means they think there's no point in me going to school because, you know, I'm going to be dead in 10 or 20 years. No, you're not. You're going to live one of the best lives ever. But there is going to be a problem with climate change, and we would love to help you try to figure that out. Oh, and there's also going to be a problem with tuberculosis, and there's one with malaria, and there's one with, uh, you know, chronic diseases and infectious diseases and all these other things. We'd love you to figure all of these things out. So we still need you. We need you to go to school. We need you to recognize that this world can be made even better. And here's how to start working on it. And it seems particularly you know, incongruous in a country like Australia, where we're about 1% of the world's emissions, and yet we seem to be you know, self-flagellating over the issue. It's constantly in the news cycle. It's constantly on the political dial. I mean, and in fact, a little bit like the, uh, yeah, the BBC, I know in, in the UK now have these red maps sort of to sort of show how... You know, the heat wave is on through Europe, which, of course, is you know, utterly disingenuous. Um, have, have you, over the years, I mean, obviously you've been to Australia a bit, have you, have you picked up a sense for politics in Australia? Does it, you know, has it lent itself to that kind of hysteria? And Because it, it feels to me like there's not much pushback on some of this stuff. And um, no, I don't no, know if you've picked no. up any themes. There's not anywhere enough pushback on this. I should just say on the, on the red maps, I've, I, I'm very sort of conflicted about this uh, because their argument is that they have changed the, the maps to be much more red in the summer, but much more blue in the, in the winter. So their argument is we're both warning people that heat is bad and that cold is bad. That's technically true. And I think, I think their heart is in the right place. I just think the presenter should be much, much, much more focusing in the winter. It's incredibly important you keep your home heat well heated. It's incredibly important you go and check on your uh, on your great aunt or whoever and make sure that she's uh, well heated because this is what kills most people, right? So again, remember about nine, ten times more people die from cold than from heat, and they don't. So, so I, I'm sort of okay with the red if they were just being honest about the both not just heat when it's convenient, but also with coal. And that goes to the more general point of what you were just talking about here, that we we, we have this incredible one-sidedness that we will just talk about, uh, you know, that people will incessantly make stories out of the 2% reduction in food production, as I just mentioned, from 55 to 53%. And I get that that's an important story, but surely you ought to be able to say, Oh, it's a reduction in increase 
we won't see an increase of 55, but only one of 53%. And then that they don't tell you, but if you do all the policies that the Green Party and everybody else wants you to do, we'd get down to 48%. Yeah, I think it's there that the slight dishonesty sets in, that we're just simply not asking those questions that any other reporter would do. And I think it has to do with the fact that if you think about political reporters in Australia and anywhere else, uh, they would never listen to your national party, right? The Liberal Did Party, I, or you're close enough. Liberal Party. <laughs> Sorry, yes. Uh, but, you know, they would never get talk to a Liberal Party uh, 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 politician without asking him some really hard sort of labor-infused questions. And likewise, if they talked to a Labor uh, Party, they would try to do some liberal talking points and, you know, sort of test him out. And, and they would take pride in the fact that they were not sort of showcasing their own policy. Every once in a while, of course, they do. But, yeah, they would really try. That's what is a good political journalist. But a climate journalist, unfortunately, almost seems like they've become campaigners in and of themselves. No, we're arguing for the good case of switching over to renewables, not nuclear, and making sure that we do all these right things. Sort of almost we're a Green Party politician and we're proud of it. And I think we should be ashamed of having uh, such journalists. We should have journalists that actually tell us, the, you know, ask the liberals the hard green questions, but ask the green the hard liberal questions, right? And that's how it should be. And we're not in that position right now. And I think we should make it um, less socially acceptable that you don't ask hard questions uh, uh, for, from these issues. But, but you know, look, if 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 I uh, uh, I've been doing this for twenty years, if I had an easy way out, uh, I, I would have suggested already. I think this is really really hard, and it is one of those. Um, uh, places where, you know, we're just stuck on inefficient policies. Yeah, actually, I, I, you could actually draw a, a, a similar line through journalism generally. I'd argue that a lot of journalism has become advocacy now anyway, which is a terribly sad thing. When you do get the journalists that actually pick through, you, uh, you, you note them where you should just be the norm now as well. At 400 kilometres that way, north, um, there is one of the largest world's supplies of uranium um, out at Roxby Dam and other places around the state, South Australia being the home of you know, some really serious reserves of uranium. And yet no nuclear industry in this country, which, of course, in my mind, is one of the things that bells the cat, we would say, on, on the ideological agenda of the green left in this country. This, this sort of solves a lot of the emissions problems that, for, you know, for those that say they're there. Um, it hasn't happened. I know you're a big nuclear advocate, but in a country like Australia, it, it really couldn't make more sense, could it? I mean, as long as the numbers stack up, which I accept that that's the market's job, but there must be a case for nuclear energy in this country, surely. So the, the general point is uh, uh, I'm, I'm going to be a little less enthusiastic about nuclear energy than you possibly hope. Uh, so nuclear is definitely a good solution for bringing electricity to the world that's CO2 neutral. Uh, so really it's the only way that we know how to make backload, back, uh, uh, sorry, uh, oh, what is that word? Back, backbone power. Oh. Thank you, sorry, uh, for, for making baseload power uh, uh, that we know that is CO2 neutral. Uh, so obviously it has a huge opportunity there. People are very frightened of nuclear power because uh, for a very long time it was sort of associated with nuclear weapons. And you know, yes, there is some potential dangers and obviously Chernobyl and so on. Uh, but the reality is nuclear power is one of the safest power sources ever. Unfortunately, 
partly because we were so worried about it, there's been a lot of regulation for nuclear power, which is one of the reasons that new nuclear power in rich countries is incredibly expensive. Uh, so it's probably more expensive than any you know, renewable uh, energy that you can come up with. So third generation or current generation nuclear power is actually not very effective. Uh, now, you could argue, well, maybe we should deregulate, but I just don't think that's ever going to happen. Let's make nuclear a little more dangerous. That's just not going to sell any uh, political votes, right? So that's, it. that's why most people are arguing we should go for fourth generation nuclear power, which is basically small modular reactors uh, where you get the, uh, the certification for the individual reactor, so you know the production of the, the small reactor, and then you just produce like 10,000 of them. Instead of getting it for this one building that you're going to place this one particular place, that's sort of an art and masterpiece. Then you can make it much, much cheaper. It's going to be much safer is what they're saying and much cheaper. Now, we don't know whether that's true. So again, I'm going to hold back on, on uh, the recommendation that we should be doing that. But we should certainly be spending a lot of money in research and development in fourth generation nuclear so that we can get to the point where it's incredibly cheap and it'll just take over the world. Now, the second part, as I promised, is also, remember, electricity is not everything. Nuclear only provides electricity, but right now, electricity only makes up about a fifth of our total energy consumption. So most of it comes from transportation, which could possibly be electrified, but it's going to be a lot harder than what most people think, from heating in homes, which is typically very, very little of uh, electricity can be electri electrified, but again, it's going to be very costly. And then a lot of industrial processes. And m many of these are going to be much, much more costly to electrify. So again, in the very long future, we can sort of imagine electrifying the whole world. Uh, and especially, of course, if we have nuclear that costs virtually nothing, I can see that happening. Uh, but it's, it's not as straightforward as we would like to believe. But I think the real point to take away from this is if people really were so worried as they claim they are, oh, the end is nigh, all our kids are going to die, we need to do everything right now, you've got to ask themselves, why would you then propose to switch to solar and wind, which we know can only power a small part of the world? Right now it powers less than 2% of the entire energy consumption of the world, maybe we can get to five or 10%, but we're not gonna get to 100% because what are you gonna do when the sun is not shining and the wind is not blowing? There's just simply obvious arguments against trying to run a whole advanced economy on just renewables. You will have to use nuclear. And the fact that people say, no, I'm not gonna use nuclear. It is the end of the world, but I'm not gonna use nuclear sort of tells you that there's one of these points that they're not honest about. Yeah, and, and in actual fact, I mean, it, it, we have now a huge uptake in solar and, uh, you know, wind farms here in this country. And of course, the, the prices are, are, you know, skyrocketing across the board. And we've got high gas prices as well for various reasons that the government here want to say that's because of a whole range of other factors, the war in Ukraine, you know, whatever it is. But is it fair to say that wherever those renewables start saturating the market, the prices increase as well? I mean, is that an unfair statement? No, no, it's absolutely true. You can see this in all rich countries. Uh, electricity prices were coming down. Uh, so, for instance, we have uh, 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 like data back from the early part of 1900. Electricity prices per kilowatt was coming down, 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 down to about 2000. And then it started increasing. And a large part of that is just simply that many countries in the rich 
uh, world have started saturating it with very expensive electricity. Now, again, people will say that solar and wind are some of the cheapest electricity, and that's true very often when the sun is shining and the wind is blowing, but when it's not, it's actually the most expensive energy form possible because it's infinitely costly. Uh, and then people will sort of, you know, vaguely uh, suggest, well, yes, but batteries. Uh, but remember, globally, batteries, uh, we have sufficient batteries to uptake about one minute and 15 seconds of the current electricity consumption of the world. So, you know, we can we can sort of if you imagine that we were running everything on solar and wind, uh, you could keep the world running for one minute and 15 seconds and then you'd be done. You just don't have backup capacity. Now, we are going to build a lot more batteries. So by the end of this decade, we'll be all the way up to 11 minutes. Uh, but remember, you actually need to at least get through the night, but also much more likely get through a couple of days of low wind. And if you incorporate that, we're, we're sort of infinitely far away from this. Again, I'm not saying, you know, innovation can solve some of this and absolutely solar and wind is going to be part of the solution. Uh, for instance, if you live in California, and I would imagine this is somewhat dissimilar in, in parts of Australia, if you use solar to take out the air conditioning part in the middle of the day. You need the most air conditioning when it's clear skies and lots of sun, which is when you're gonna be producing a lot of solar energy to power those air conditioning. That actually turns out to be really well uh, you know, because those are balanced. So that can be a very, very good idea. But that's sort of uh, you know taking the very top out of it and that turns out to be a good idea. But don't believe that we can actually power most of the world or all of the world on solar and wind. That's just really silly. It's a it's a completely fascinating thesis, and I, and I loved uh, I loved reading the book, and I loved the um, you know the idea that we can do things better. It's just a, a no brainer from from where I sit, and I, I'm you know I guess uh, intrigued as to why it is there aren't more more pragmatic voices in this space. Uh, maybe the same is true of politics, but certainly in terms of uh, academics and commentators and policy drivers like yourself, I, do, do you, I mean there must be more out there. I'm probably just I'm not familiar with people that have taken a very pragmatic line like you have. Um, or, you know, or, or is it, or is it just you? Is it, you should now say it's just me and I'm the greatest. So. No, so, so there's, there's definitely a lot of people out there who will tell you we should be smart and do, do, you know, things that make a lot of economic sense. Uh, I think my institution, so the Copenhagen consensus is probably the only one that actually does cost benefit for a living. So we constantly try to take people and say, look, you got to do cost benefit on all of these different things, do them comparably so you can actually show this to politicians and say, if you want to do this, you get $3 back on the dollar. If you do this, you get $30 back on the dollar. If you do this, you only get 30 cents back on your dollar. What do you want to do? That kind of thing, that's incredibly useful for political discussion. And of course, look, this is a menu with prices. It's not the same thing as saying you should pick the highest one, right? Maybe, you know, if, if it was a menu and we found that, you know, spinach should really good for you because it's cheap and it's very effective and it's healthy and all that stuff. Maybe you don't like spinach uh, and that's fine, you know, but it's certainly good suggestions to make better policy decisions. I think what we find is even when we work with some of the best economists in the world, they obviously get the idea of needing to make priorities and saying, you know, what works best. They're also a little squeamish, but well, we also want to say this is good and we also want to say this is good. We don't want to be bad people and not say that. I think it goes back to this idea of saying we all like to say yes to everything. And we feel a little crappy 
if we end up saying no to a lot of stuff. So I get this sort of politeness that we actually, no, your idea is great too. And this idea over here is good too. We should do all of those ideas. It's sort of a natural inclination for us. So when you end up saying, let's do the best things first, you are inevitable, because best things first sounds great. That's of course why I, I chose it as the title, but it also means don't do the other stuff first. And, and that sounds a little, look this pleasing, I get that. So no, I actually think, a lot of people get the idea. A lot of people think that we should be doing it, but it's actually really hard not to come across as a little bit of a dick if, if you if you if 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 you say it all the time. You know, look, we should do the smartest stuff first. No, not that. No, not that. Not that. Not that. Because there's you know there's an infinite number of things uh, to do in the world, and we just said you should do twelve things. So you know uh, that means infinite minus twelve things you shouldn't do first. That's a, that's a, that's a terrible. Oh, outline right i'm not you know i'm not i'm slightly facetious but unfortunately yeah. not to no, look, and John, look, thank you for that. The book is Best Things First. Uh, fascinating stuff and a great addition to the to the library, the catalogue. And um, look, I just thank you for coming on today and uh, stepping us through it all. And uh, it'll be, hopefully we'll see you in Australia at some time soon, if not uh, if not at the upcoming ARC forum, the ARC forum, which uh, I think Absolutely. you're a, a, a founding member and an organising on the organising committee. And I'll be there and. Uh, in October in London as well. It's going to be a fascinating look into, um, you know, these sort of discussions and how we can do things better and what we can do to sort of push pragmatism back and make pragmatism great again, I suppose. So um, thank, you for, uh, thank you for your time and thanks for coming on. Much appreciated. Thank you, thank you so much, Alex. I'll look forward to seeing you. <laughs> thanks for that.